Buddy, this is Chris, and we are finally into the dawn of X proper here. This is X Lapsed, episode 13. We are done with Hox Pox, and we're into docs. As always, we've got a lot to talk about today, so uh, let's get right into it. This is X Men number one, December 2019 cover date. Uh, you might want to call it X Men volume five, number one. You might want to call it X Men. LGY number 645 Um, Yeah, this is the only issue of X-Men To my knowledge, at least That came packing with a legacy number So Okay, let's start there Um, It may be Completely apparent to those listening But I'm I'm a fairly anal guy When it comes to my comics And how I Store them And how I Pack them And Oof, I mean, we have some storage woes here, right? We've got a new volume of X-Men, but it comes with a legacy number. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of these legacy numbers. I love straightforward legacy numbers, so if this came out as X-Men Volume 1, number 645, I'd be all over it. But, uh, I mean, we got two different numbers here. We got different volumes. We dropped the uncanny, uh... I mean, Uncanny, now this was the last of the Marvel Legacy books to reboot. Uh, This is probably, what, 2012, 2011, 2012-ish? It was right around the time of the New 52, maybe a little bit afterwards. Uh, They, you know, they canned the original volume, started new number ones. Seems like we get a new number one of Uncanny almost every single year. So we get all these, like, weird extra volumes of Uncanny. Then all of a sudden, Uncanny X-Men number 600 comes out. So it's like, okay, so we back into the regular numbering? Well, no. A couple months later, Uncanny volume 4 ships with a new number 1. And that that goes for a whopping 19 issues. Then after the blue and gold mess, we get Uncanny volume 5 with another number 1, but that one comes with legacy numbers, right? So that one starts issue 1 of volume 5 is actually legacy number 620. And I remember explaining this to uh, to Reggie during one of our episodes of Comics Talk. I just don't remember which one. We get Uncanny Volume 5, number 1, right? We take that all the way up to Uncanny Volume 5, number 16, which was Legacy number 635, right? Okay, then next we get Uncanny Volume 5, number 17. That had a Legacy number of 639. So what happened to 636, 637, and 638? Well, those are attached to the War of the Realms miniseries, Uncanny X-Men 1 through 3. The hell is this? 
I mean, I guess it's a good move by Marvel to hook the completionists and you know to reading their their boring Thor story, but such a disaster. So now we we wrap up that volume just a couple issues after that, and now we drop Uncanny from the title, and for this issue only, we keep the Uncanny Legacy number going with six forty five. Where the hell do I file this? Do I do I file this with my Uncannies? Do I start a new volume overall? What do I do with this? And and sadly, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night. And uh, I'd apologize, but I mean, I, I, it's it's probably just something too silly to apologize for. But uh, I'll stop complaining about that for now here, and then we'll just get we'll we'll just get right back into the credits. Okay, so it's uncanny. Oh no, it's not uncanny. It's just X Men number one or whatever. December 2019 cover date. The story is called Pax Krakoa, written by Jonathan Hickman, pencils by Lionel Francis Yu, inks by Jerry Alla, Alan Gillen, Alan Gillen, colors Sonny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, hey, there's a familiar name, design Tom Muller, another familiar name, and our editors are the same, Bisa, White, and Sabalski. This was a $5 book, hit the shelves on October 16th, 2019, and uh, I actually picked this issue up the day after that. On the uh, Thursday And this was at a point where the closest shop to my house Had already sold out of all the, you know, the real cover For, you know, the the original cover The cover A uh, for this issue So I was stuck getting a variant And I'm not a huge fan of variants Uh, I don't like... I I feel like if we over-rely on variants We're just a... yeah, we're you know we're inflating a bubble, and at the same time we're making the comics a little bit less uh, identifiable. You know, we're not going to get another you know coming of Galactus cover. You know, we're just getting these weird uh, pinup covers, and then we get the baby covers and all this stupid stuff. But the cover I got stuck with, we have Cyclops, Jean, and Wolverine popping out of a cake, which uh, uh, maybe I owe Scotty Young a, an apology because this is even dumber than than the baby covers. Uh, I am still on the lookout for an original cover uh, version, if I can find it on the cheap. I'm not going to pay another five bucks for it. But, uh, yeah, I actually picked this up like an hour or two before hopping on a plane back to New York and kind of just sat there on my desk for a week or so. I want to say, I want to say I recorded an episode of a show in between, you know, picking this up and actually taking off that day. Uh, It might be somewhere in the archives. Uh, Maybe if I remember, I'll link to it. Anyway, let's get to it. We open up in Flashbackland, where a young Scott Summers is too scared to open his eyes, lest he let loose his optic beams. He's assured that he's safe, and so he does. He looks at Professor Xavier through his ruby, t- ruby quartz specs and is happy that he can see again. And Charles is all, oh yes, and oh the things I can show you. We get a page to introduce our roster, so let's meet them. Cyclops, of course. Storm. Polaris. Magneto. Cecilia Reyes, Jean Grey, Havoc, Vulcan, the third Summers brother, Wolverine, the young Cable, Prestige, who's uh, Rachel Summers, I think that's a, a newish name for her, and uh, Corsair, that's the cast of our issue here. And then we get a double-page spread of credits, so I guess uh, I guess we're still going to eat up the pages this way, and if I recall right, because I, uh, I do log these in the Excel spreadsheet every time I get the books. I don't read them, but I do log them, and I, I, I'm pretty sure every single Dawn of X book has this two-page spread of credits, so 
Maybe I'll stop mentioning it. Who knows? Anyway, we jump right into the action, and we join Storm and Cyclops as they're infiltrating an Orcus stronghold. And uh, it kind of looks what you might picture like a final dungeon to be in a role-playing game. It just, uh, it kind of screams evil. You know, you'd almost figure that other world powers, other world governments might want to step in and be like, you know, what's going on in here? Anyway, Storm and Cyclops warn each other to be careful while they battle their way through some Orcus-flavored sentinels. Cyclops manages to snipe one with his peepers just before it clobbers Storm. Storm, you know, she thanks him and admits that maybe she's a bit tired, uh, but then sort of twists that admission into being tired of people creating mutant-hunting robots. So, there you go. They happen across a hallway that's just crammed with Orcus security. They, uh, Storm and Cyclops, chat about progress and how they're experiencing that one giant leap from mutant kind at the moment. Cyclops then optic blasts the hallway, which, as you might imagine, really freaks the security squad out. Storm then zaps him with electricity, but uh, here's the thing. The humans aren't exactly running for the hills here. What they do instead is uh, they fall back, almost in a formation. This leads Cyclops to assume that they're, uh, that these, these goofs are probably maintaining a position in order to protect something, so they feel like they're getting closer to whatever they're getting to. Nearby, Magneto and Polaris tear their way in through the roof, the latter of which then entangles the Orcus folk in cables and wires and stuff to get him out of the way. Magneto then joins Cyclops as they're stood before this place of extreme interest. Uh, Cyclops blast, attempts to blast his way through, however, the door is made of vibranium, so it's up to Magneto to play locksmith. We shift scenes inside a lab here, and we meet a Dr. Mars. An Orcus geek warns that the X-Men are on their way, uh, Mars, he's a little more worried about their data than any uh, potential loss of human life, it would seem. Yes, how much redundancy there is between the Orcus Forge and the Orcus Hub. And if I can stay awake long enough, we learn that there's an 80% overlap. And uh, the story's not boring me, but the Orcus thing is a little bit dull. Mars suggests that they can make that they ought to make the ultimate sacrifice and do whatever they can to maintain their data and their work. He injects himself, and I'm assuming the others, with a syringe, and more on that in just a bit. Actually, right now. Cyclops and the gang manage to make their way inside the lab, only to find themselves attacked by... apes. Apes with PhDs. So uh, those Orcus scientists have injected themselves with something that you know slips them down a rung on the evolutionary ladder, it seems. Magneto tells the others to go on ahead because he'll deal with the apes. Inside the lab, there are a slew of stasis tubes. All but one have a mutant within. And the last one, however, is a pretty strange thing. It's uh, what appears to be a young girl with many of the aesthetic trappings of the librarian from X to the Third Power from, uh, you know, Hoxpox, year 1000. So, perhaps a post-human in, in our time? Storm recognizes her as being from the Vault. And I, I know I've... You know, I know I've seen or read an X-Men story about a vault forever ago. So maybe we know this girl? I'm not entirely sure. Now this post-human girl kind of freaks out and manages to blip away before the X-Men can get all that much out of her. As for the rest of the mutants saved, well, they, they look like generic mutants. Um, kind of like we might, what we might see in the background of a Morrison-era issue. None of them really, you know, in particular stand out. Though, I... I 
probably worth mentioning that there is a sort of blocky, rotund one that reminds me a little bit of one of the mutants that attacked the librarian back in the preserve in Powers of X number 6, so maybe there's something, you know, to that. From here, you know, Magneto, he, he takes care of the apes, of course, and uh, from here we head back to Krakoa. The rescued mutants are escorted to Dr. Cecilia Reyes for evaluation. Storm offers to help Reyes with the process and makes a face that I swear Gary Frank drew. Cyclops asks if Storm's sure she's up to it. After all, they just came off a mission, and, hell, they were already tired to begin with. Storm gives the big thumbs up, and so Cyclops decides to head home. But first, we see a group of mutant children who are absolutely pleased as punch that Magneto's back. The kids all want to join Magneto on his next mission, but he tells them that the only reason he fights is so they'll never have to. Magneto is something of a, like a rock star here. It's a pretty, it, it's quite odd to see. Now Polaris, who is looking on, suggests that this is a bit embarrassing to see her father this way. Cyclops dismisses it. He's like, eh, he's earned it. Let him have it. The two, Cyclops and Polaris, they leave the scene, but we stay with them, and they have a kind of weird chat. Cyclops starts talking about how he felt when he had his son. Yeah, that whole tropey, you know, bringing an innocent into this messed up world sort of thing. Though, I suppose when, you know, a constantly hunted mutant says it, it might carry a little bit more weight. Now, Cyclops invites Lorna back to his place because it's going to be a big old Summer's family reunion, and her on-again, off-again Alex will be there. Lorna declines the offer, giving us a line that kind of, like, sums up how I'm feeling about this whole Dawn of X endeavor. She, She says... When the past is the past, and I'm not still finding my way in a new land, that she'll come. So, yeah, I kind of feel those feels there. Uh, I want to know what the past is, and uh, I'm still finding my way. I don't think she meant it in that way, but uh, that's how I'm going to take it. Now, Cyclops talks a little bit more about this giant step forward, and uh, I might be taking this a little bit literally, but it almost feels like he and Lorna might have a like a thing going on here. He He, he talks to her about... You know, everything he might have lost and everything he held on to and everything he now has. He says, I held on, and look, I have you, and your father, and my family, my boy. So unless this is all like a like a kumbaya, hey, we're all mutants and we're all pals sort of thing, uh, I mean, I have you, Polaris. That's, uh, I don't know, that caught me a little off guard. Um, though I, again, might be reading too much into it. Anyway, Cyclops finally steps through the Krakoan gateway to head home, and uh, I gotta say, before we move on here, I'm really, really enjoying these uh, X-Men-centric scenes. It gives me this very strange feeling like I'm seeing old friends again. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool. I, I really enjoy it. But on that note, who's ready to go back to the friggin' Orcus Forge? Not me, but we gotta. We see the satellite, and it's still missing its mother mold head, as many ships approach. Inside, we see Killian Devo, who is uh, the director, or the general, or the sergeant, or whatever. He laments the loss of the mother mold head from whichever issue of Hoxbox that was. He then chats up Karima What's-Her-Face, and they do a pretty good job filling us in on, well, stuff. Uh, you know, like the makeup of Orcus, use of various minds from the Marvel acronym farm, you know, some of whom might be a little less savory than others, but... You know how it is, you gotta keep the eyes on the prize, which, uh, I guess snuffing out mutants by any means necessary is more important than associating with a shield guy or an aim guy or a hydra guy or a whatever guy. Karima questions the wisdom of Orcus, you know, kinda hiding in plain sight, which is to say, not really hiding at all. 
Gotta figure, like, a giant sentinel head floating in orbit might solicit a response or two from the superhuman or mutant communities, right? Devo, he decides to take full blame for the whole thing, and he lets uh, Dr. Gregor off the hook. So it was all his fault. From here, we shift scenes to Summer House, as where, of course, Scott lives, and Scott and a lot of people, we're gonna see. And, whew, boy, this kind of feels like we're watching an episode of The Twilight Zone here. Um, or like like the really mundane and happy scene you might see in a horror movie that would, you know, to just to juxtapose all the gore and fright. It's very unsettling, and we're going to talk a lot about that. First, we learn that Summer House is located on the moon. Cyclops is joined by Corsair, his father, and they chat for a bit. It seems as though... Uh, Old Christopher Summers' spidey sense is already tingling, as is mine. Inside, Vulcan, the third Summers' brother, is grilling some meat, or burning it, if you ask Wolverine. He and Wolverine argue about how long meat ought to be cooked. You know, Wolverine wants his steak to be rare. Vulcan ultimately comes around and tells Logan that he'll leave his steak rare. Well, medium rare, anyway. I'm... I'm a medium-well guy myself, but uh, then again, I also smother my steak and sauce, so what do I know? Elsewhere, Starjammer Raza and Kid Cable are comparing firearms. Little Nate is real keen on Raza's gear and asks his mom, Jean Grey, if it'd be cool if they swap. Jean, who looks very domesticated, tells Nate to set the table first. Chad, or Chad, enters the scene looking for some sweetener for his tea. And yeah, this is very weird. Uh, I feel like almost uncomfortable watching. It's like almost like voyeuristic watching this. It's strange. Very strange. Finally, it's dinner time. Hepzibah, she chats Rachel up about her spiky gear in a kind of weird bit. She then refers to Rachel as a hard girl and so offers her a hard drink. Have I said weird enough yet? Um... Scott and Chris finally enter the scene, and it's just in time, because Jean informs them that Gabriel is just about through burning their meat. During dinner, Corsair is presented with a gift. Havoc hands over a Krakoa flower, which they explain is a gateway which Corsair can plant in the Starjammer's Arboretum, and so they can stay in contact. Corsair gives the camera a big chuckle-headed grin and says he loves it. Vulcan goes on, and on, and on, and on about the importance of family before apologizing that he lacked a sufficiently strong male role model during his formative years. Hmm, I don't, I don't want to prove Magneto right here, but I'm telling you, my other shoe drop radar is pinging, and it's pinging really hard. Okay, on to an info page. Can't forget about those. This time, it's a couple of schematics of Summer House. We get a slightly more specific location for it, and it is the blue area of the moon. And isn't that where the damn boring Inhumans live? Yeah, I hope we don't see them anytime soon. Anywho, we see the setup, and we also get a look at the floor plan. It looks like there are nine bedrooms at Summer House. The first one belongs to Cyclops. The second one belongs to Wolverine for some reason. The third is Jean Grey. Hmm. Fourth is Vulcan, fifth is Havoc, the sixth is empty, so uh, maybe there's another Summer's sibling out there to be revealed. Mm, maybe not. The next one is Cable, the next one is empty, and the final one is Rachel, so I guess that's the kid's wing. I don't. Why does Wolverine get a room here? It's a little bit weird, unless we're going to go right back into the love triangle thing straight away. 
Um, I'll admit, I do remember seeing something making the rounds on social media, probably, I don't know, the spring, um, suggesting that, like, Wolverine and Scott might have, might have a bit of a fling going on. But, uh, you know, those are the kind of stories that, that usually find their way making the rounds of social media, regardless of whether or not there's any truth to it. I guess we'll find out more as we go through, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, uh, at the very end of the episode as well. Later on, we join Cyclops at the sink. He's doing the dishes with some very weird and gross Krakoan goop. Corsair enters the scene, and he's pretty grossed out, and I I totally feel him there. From here, though, we get a very weird, have I used the word weird enough today? Uh, Conversation. Corsair, he's, you know, he's taking this all in, and he says he's worried about Scott and his brothers, and, you know, something ain't right here, right? You know, right? Feels weird, huh? Cyclops assures him that everything is peachy keen and explains why this way is better than any other way they've tried in the past. Corsair tells his son he's a good boy, which... This is weird. (laughs) Very, very weird. Our last stop for the issue is back to the Orcus Forge. Devo meets up with Dr. Gregor, who... I feel looks really pretty great under a Lionel Yu's pencil. Uh, she actually doesn't even look like anything like like Lionel Yu draws. She's uh, much softer looking and without any of the you know the hash lines you might expect from a Yu character. Anywho, they chat for a bit, and Devo asks why she didn't attend her husband's funeral. She kind of dismisses the notion and suggests that she, that he will live on in Orcus's work. All the while, though, she's working at, like, a console at a machine that's blasting a concentrated red beam into just a little alcove of this machine. Once she's done blasting, she reaches in to where the beam was going and retrieves a little red crystal. We close out with her suggesting that she knows a way to bring her husband back. And that's where we leave it. The next book we'll discuss is Marauders number 1, but... Let's catch our breaths and talk about this. Okay, first off, nothing at all against Lionel Yu. I enjoy his work, but I really wish we had Laraz or Silva still on the book. Um, not that this feels like a lesser effort or anything. I've just grown like really comfortable with their styles up to this point. It uh, it's hard to see other uh, other pencils, you know, in in this new X Men landscape here. I will say that I'm happy Lionel isn't still trying to cram his signature into every page he draws anymore. I remember back around the turn of the century, his signature would pop up on almost every damn page. So that's nice that that's not there anymore. Another silly thing before we get into the meat here. The damn numbering. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just the sort of idiot who loses sleep over this. I, I shouldn't. I really shouldn't. I should get over it. But it bothers me. Um, I don't know if... I don't, it, if 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 I'm if I'm describing something that explain it that bothers you as well, I'm sorry that we're we're also damaged. <laughs> I really shouldn't be worrying about that. But with that out of the way, let's really talk about it. Stop me if you heard this one, but this was weird. Um, I wish that I wrote down some of my thoughts from the first time I read this last fall, because you know I, I as I've explained here, I read it fresh. You know, I didn't read Hawks, didn't read Pox. Hell, I didn't read anything with an X on it since, like, X-Men Gold number 3. You know, back in 2016, 2017. It's been a while, right? I, I do remember being totally out of my element, but mostly enjoying it. 
uh, not enough to actually keep reading, uh, but I, I guess I'd say I'd walked away thinking it was a net positive, so more good than bad, I guess. Um, now, in revisiting this today with a semblance of context, I enjoyed it far more, but was perhaps even more weirded out by it as well. That's a... Uh, Let's take this beat by beat. Now, I've got some bullet points here, but we're going to freestyle from there. Orcus. I could take or leave him. Um, this doesn't feel fresh. Uh, it, this feels just like a high concept. That's, a, that's the term we're using. A high concept rehash of like a whole bunch of anti-mutant groups that we've seen like Skate 800 times before. Eh. You know, and, and you know, over the course of our Hoxpox discussions, I did ask, who would the X-Men fight in Dawn of X, considering all the top-tier villains are now on the same side with them? They're all allies. What it looks like we're getting is Orcus. Now, I'll do my best to reserve judgment, but, you know, all things being equal, and me being honest here, the Orcus scenes were my very least favorite in this issue, and outside of year 1000, they were my least favorite in, in Hoxpox. Not a fault of the story, because we are laying a foundation. Um, maybe maybe I just expected something different. Maybe I just wanted more time to reacquaint with the X-Men, you know? I suppose perhaps I just need to be a little bit more patient. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I did like the X-Men rescuing those mutants and actually getting a post-human sighting in the you know present day. I want to do a little bit of research on the girl, but I'm afraid I'll wind up spoiling myself. Um, as I mentioned in the synopsis, I know there have been a couple of vaults, or probably a handful of vaults in X-History. Um, off the top of my head, there's that one with the, like, the big-eyed girl where Xavier was locked up after Onslaught. That There was that one. And then there was that one from... It was either the Peter Milligan or the Mike Carey run. I want to say Chris Pachalo drew it. This girl isn't Negasonic Teenage Warhead, is it? I, I hope not, because that's that name just annoys me. Um, now the rescued mutants were a bit uninspired in their design, though, as mentioned, I wonder if any of them were tied into the uh, you know that whole preserve scene from the year one thousand. Uh, the Cyclops and Polaris scene felt a little weird, felt a little awkward. Um, Felt like they really wanted Cyclops to deliver that monologue about his son and changing the world and whatnot, and just needed to have a sort of incredulous, like, sounding board for him to do so. Um, and was I reading too hard into things to suggest that there might be a thing between Scott and Lorna? Is that why she'd be uncomfortable around Alex and why she declined the invitation? Or maybe she's just always uncomfortable around Alex because they were, you know, they have a history. I guess we'll find out. And also, hopefully we'll find out what that history is, because search me, I don't know. On to Summerhouse. Now, this was an uncanny scene, wasn't it? Um, I think I've brought up Neon Genesis Evangelion before while discussing this this series, in, the, in this series of episodes here. But, you know, during that anime, which was pretty dark and heavy, there would be, like, these weird unreal mundane scenes of the characters living normal lives, like they'd be late for school or they'd have just these weird little mundane bits so, instead of them piloting like crazy soul-having mechs while fighting angels in these bits they would just be kids that went to school and had like awkward, happy teenage lives and they'd be happy anime music and those scenes served as a perfect juxtaposition with the rest of the show and they were so different in tone that you really couldn't help but to be a little creeped out 
by watching them, and that is exactly how I feel reading this summer house scene. It's very, very unsettling, and we've talked about this before. Uh, Wayne Booth wrote in early in the series here to talk about how weird it is for us as fans to see the X-Men happy and having peace, you know? Uh, But, you know, remember what Magneto said about us cynics. Uh, We're just waiting for that other shoe to drop. Or, maybe take it a step further, maybe we're so busy trying to find that other shoe dropping that we miss out on enjoying life. Is this getting meta? Am I I being personally attacked again? I don't know. We'll we'll see. (laughs) Now, as for the scene, I don't know. I wonder what it might be like to reread it, like in a few months, like after we get through a good chunk of Dawn of X here and just see how I receive it. I mean, will the other shoes have dropped by then, or will I just know better? I, I don't know. It's very, very unsettling. I do like that this whole scene doesn't pass Corsair's smell test. I feel like he might be serving as like an avatar for the seasoned curmudgeonly X-Fan. You know, like, we know something's up. No matter how Cyclops tries to massage it, we know. You know, we know there's something weird here, but uh, we have no choice but to let it play out. So that's exactly what we'll do. Info pages. Unless I'm forgetting any, the only info pages we got here were the Summer House schematic. And I'm 100% cool with that. I always loved it when Marvel and DC would include this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, you think about the Fortress of Solitude. You get to see the, the how the fortress is set up. Uh, seeing a cross-section of the Baxter building in a Fantastic Four annual. I mean, this is classic comic stuff. Just with a stylized coat of paint. And I cannot hate it. In fact, I, I really like it. Also... In addition to looking really cool and giving us, you know, a nice little glimpse, it also gives us a lot to chew on. Why is Wolverine shacked up with the Summers? Why aren't Scott and Jean sharing a room? Is Wolverine being between Scott and Jean symbolic of anything? Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that during the feedback. Who's going to fill these empty rooms? Because, I mean, looking at them, they're basically Chekhov's bedrooms, right? You know, they, weren't, they wouldn't be shown here if they weren't going to come to play. So they're eventually going to have to be addressed, right? I, I would assume so. So wrapping this issue all up with Orcus and Dr. Gregor was, was good. Um, since Orcus and Gregor are, in my opinion, the weakest part of the issue, the cliffhanger really didn't hook me quite as hard as perhaps it should have. But, you know, I'm still down. I'm still good with it. I'm still down to learn more, and uh, I'm open to having it all fleshed out for us here. Overall, this was a heck of an opener to the Dawn of X era. Got lots of questions, not so many answers, which uh, I was expecting not to get so many answers. Uh, But at least we didn't start with a scene featuring Maria Hill and S.H.I.E.L.D., like I swear the last few volumes of X-Men did, so (laughs) net positive just for the lack of S.H.I.E.L.D. So that's a good thing. Um, But that... That's X-Men, Volume 5, Number 1, Legacy Number, whatever the hell it is, and uh, I dug it. I'm happy, and uh, let's uh, hop back into the mailbag before we go. First, a couple of short messages here. Uh, One from Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom. He says, I've really been enjoying the show. Pat Sampson on Facebook says, really enjoying listening. And thank you both so much for listening. Uh, I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on this new X-Men era, and... And this just goes to show how easy I am. Uh, <laughs> I get an attaboy every now and again, and I am just set. You know, I am very, very easy. 
Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys for reaching out and commenting. I'm so happy that you're enjoying this, and uh, I hope you're uh, you're sticking with it, just like I hope I'm sticking with it. So uh, thank you all. Thank you. Thank everybody, actually. Uh, next, our friend Evan Bevins, at Evan underscore Bevins, he said, I had trouble getting excited about the year 1000 stuff, but I felt like it did pay off. I think the idea that Mora and Charles are resigned to the X-Men always losing and still fighting the good fight is a quintessential X-Men theme. The ethics of not telling anyone else is up for debate. And this is something... I'm recording these a couple of days ahead, so uh, this is something I kind of blathered on about for a while during ex- uh, episode number uh, 12. And I you know, I still wonder about how Moore is able to make such a sweeping statement when, I mean, in a few of her lives, she died before the X-Men officially lost, you know? Uh, also, it still isn't clear to me if the events of Moore's 10th life are like new and, new and unique to her 10th life. Have the X-Men ever sent the Mother Mold into the sun before? And still came up short? Or is this new to Mora, you know, Mora's 10th, Mora X? If so, maybe they ought to be a little bit more optimistic about the future. I don't know. Maybe this will like make a bit more sense to me as we continue along. But um, I love the uh, food for thought. Uh, the ethics of not telling anyone, definitely up for debate. Definitely. Because, uh, I mean, you think about people who are in positions of power and what they know and what we don't. And being left in the dark... I mean, there are a couple of ways you can look at that. You know, I think there maybe there are some things we shouldn't know. Maybe there are a few things that we know too much about. But then there are things that we probably ought to know. It's uh, definitely a uh, it's definitely a thinker. You know, there's definitely a lot of meat on that bone. So, if anybody has any thoughts on that, any uh, feedback on on the uh, the morality or the ethics of uh, keeping this secret, let me know for sure. I, I definitely love to uh, hear everybody's opinion because. Frankly, my my opinion on most things is very wibbly wobbly, so maybe you can you know set me straight. <laughs> uh, we have uh, some feedback from Jason C at PSEU forty two on Twitter is regarding episode nine. I just caught up on the part of your X lapsed coverage where you saw the big reveal I teased at you earlier. Hell of a thing, huh? I only kind of sort of knew that who that character was before Hox and Pox, so I expect it was an even more of a thing for more knowledgeable readers. And yes, Jason was the one who uh, who hinted that uh, old GB was going to show up. Old Gold Balls, who uh, on other programs on this channel, I kind of <laughs> I've kind of made my uh, I've kind of made my feelings on Gold Balls clear, and the actually the most of the Bendis run, but. Uh, yeah, he, I was teased that Gold Balls was coming, so I was braced for it, but still, when I saw him, I was just like, oh man, here he is. But, uh, like I said during episode 9, Hickman, you know, he killed it. Uh, uh, Gold Balls works in this context. Uh, turned uh, a, you know, a gonad joke into a vital member of the uh, Krakoan community, and that was very, very cool. Uh, Jason will, uh, he's also going to share some thoughts about the, uh, his feelings on the fallout of Hoxpox. So I'm looking forward to that, and I will, sh- I will share them here when, uh, when those arrive. From here, we got a twofer from Damien, our friend Damien, at, at Whiter Trash on Twitter. This is, uh, the first one is regarding episode 10. He says, God, I sounded negative on the feedback this issue. I probably overstated my frustration with DOX, Dawn of X. Uh, Damien's email uh, the other day said... That he had dropped most of the books, and uh, 
And he continues to say, My main problem is that I can't afford to buy that many books, particularly as my finances have been curtailed by the whole 2020 thing. Also, there was a price rise on U.S. comics here in the U.K., which was out of proportion to the comparative comparative increases in the USA, which limited my options. My move away from buying all the books was not because I hated them, but because I wasn't getting enough out of them to justify paying a fortune. I do have Marvel Unlimited, though, so I can read along with you, provided you remain behind. I am still buying Marauders on a regular basis, as it has a lot of my favorite characters in it, and it has created a storyline where every issue is essential. And I tell you, that's a bit of a relief. And I didn't take your initial message as being overly negative. I I think the comics industry is in a very strange place, right? And I also know that there's a lot of competition for, like, our comics buying dollar, our, our discretionary spending. There's a lot of competition out there for it. And sometimes books just don't make the cut. Unfortunately, I can't really relate to having to make such choices because I'm a, I'm a horrible addict who will sadly prioritize much of my spending around comics, even comics I won't ever get around to reading. I've tried to break the habit. I've tried to kick it. I fail every time. I failed with the X-Men. I'm back, you know. Uh, it's uh, I'm an all-or-nothing kind of guy. I wish I could be more choosy. I wish I could let myself be. But uh, I am... I'm a dirty addict. It's just a just a problem with me. Um, I'm also glad to hear that Marauders has kept up the quality. I, I've mentioned a couple of times that out of the out of the entire Dawn of X lineup, I only read three books. You know, it was X Men number one, Marauders number one, and Excalibur number one. And, and Marauders was definitely my favorite of those three, which was very unexpected because I was actually going to try that thing where I only pick up a certain number of books. When they announced Dawn of X, I told myself then and there, I'm only buying X-Men. You know, especially when I saw that it had a legacy number on the first issue. I was like, okay, that's going to be my book. I'm going to buy X-Men. Everything else can, you know, go go kick a cow. <laughs> I'm only buying X-Men. But then the next week, Excalibur and Marauders came out. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'll check out Excalibur. But when I got to the store, I was like, I can't buy one and not the other. So I bought it. Didn't expect anything out of it and wound up really, really enjoying it. And actually, I, I, I'm very much looking forward to revisiting it next episode. Uh, back to Damien, he says, As to this issue, I love the background into the creation of the status quo of Krakoa. I particularly enjoyed the Magneto, Xavier, and Frost section. And he tells us that we will be seeing the Quiet Council graphic again. And we are. I am recording a couple days ahead of time, so yes, we've already discussed that here. And, uh, yes, I found this very interesting as well. The uh, Xavier, Magneto, and Frost stuff. My, you know, I still have my, my cynical side that thinks that maybe Xavier's using a little bit of mental prodding, but I thought this was very interesting, and I thought that the, uh, the characters all acted true to what I you know, feel they should act. Uh, back to the email here. I'm with you on the impenetrable Year 1K stuff. I remember hating it as I first read Hoxpox. It does go somewhere interesting, though, and thankfully, all you need to understand is the concept of assimilation into a hive mind as similar to gaining an evolutionary advantage. And that's true. And uh, I'm not sure if it made the final cut of a recent episode, but I think I said something along the lines of, like, take this 1,000 stuff, distill it down to something like a five-year-old would understand, then distill it down again, (laughs) and just get on with it. Um, I... This is me projecting, but I feel like this portion of the story was maybe a little bit too satisfied with itself. 
You know, when we're talking about godheads, it's like, oh, really? Are we doing that? Come on. Uh, back to the email here. It says, I'm also impressed with your design skills. The logo for my podcast is considerably worse. Thanks again for the fantastic podcast. Uh, thank you, Damien. <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun trying to piece the, uh, the art together, the cover art for the show together. I more or less took the idea from one of the latter printings of House of X number one, just kind of disassembled it and built it back up from there. Uh, lots of crazy, you know, inserting, cutting, pasting. I'm pretty sure the original, like, transparency piece had something like 18 layers in GIMP before I merged down. Uh, I feel like my design game overall isn't really anything to write home about, but uh, thanks to the dozens of hours I spent transforming Strikeforce Moratory covers into Moratory Monday cover art, I feel like I'm getting a little bit of a better grasp at it. And, uh, I mean, on a quick pass, like... If you don't look at it too sharply, it almost looks right. <laughs> so it almost looks professional. But uh, thank you so much. But uh, before I thank you overall, let's get into the second email here from Damien. This one's regarding episode 11. And he opens by uh, thanking me for uh, for promoting his show. And that that's absolutely my pleasure. I know I don't have all that big of a platform here. And my voice probably carries worse today than it has in years, but I'll do whatever I can to support folks in the community. Um, I think that it's uh, it's very important to do that uh, because the more voices we have, uh, the better, I think. Now, back to his email. It was interesting to hear your podcast process. To illustrate my process, I'll give you a little behind the scenes. I got up this morning intended to complete my preparation for the next episode of Should I Love This Comic? I decided to check my email and was excited to see Podbean had messaged me to say I had my first download in the USA. I think that was me. Uh, this meant I had to check out the app and I noticed two new episodes of X lapsed. Well, I had to listen to them, so I had so I had to reread those two issues of Hawksbox, then listen to the episodes to comment on them both. So here I am, hours later, with no podcast prep done and some very enjoyable time passed. In X Men terms, you're clearly a John Romita Jr. and I'm an Arthur Adams. Uh, isn't that always a way? <laughs> No, it really it, it means so much to me that you're uh, that you're on board with this uh, this journey here. That is, I think that's the coolest thing ever. Um, but ain't that always the way? You know, it's part of the reason I have such a hard time being like a consumer of fandom related stuff anymore. Uh, I'm so busy putting out content, and you know, a little bit about how the sausage is made. This episode that you're listening to right now about X Men number one. It took about six hours to put together from, and that's not even including reading the issue, uh, scripting, and uh, it, it takes a while. I'm at the point where I'm actually setting an alarm and getting out of bed while it's still dark to work on these shows. Um, so I very seldom get to listen to other shows or visit comic blogs. I mean, a little bit more, you know, behind the scenes here. My notes for this issue. The notes that I'm reading from right now, my, my little bullet points and whatnot. And for many of the issues we've discussed on this show, actually have more pages than the issues themselves. Uh, so it's hard for me to consume. It's hard for me to read comics, besides the one I'm talking about. It, and I'm not complaining. I think this is like one of those grass is always greener sort of things for me, where I kind of wish I could put the hobby aside and just read. And then it's like, well, if I read them, what... what who am I going to talk about them with? You know, it's 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 a weird place to be. And, uh, yeah, this is the first time in a while that my notes have, like, started to exceed the page length of the comics themselves. Well, the joke that 
that Reggie and I would tell for the uh, Cosmic Treadmill. And, and it wasn't even a joke. It was true. Uh, we did a series of episodes concerning Crisis on Infinite Earths. It was a five-part series. Uh, ran about 12 or 13 hours total. The We would say that the uh, our script for Crisis on Infinite Earths had more pages than Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it, it does. It, it actually does. We had more pages of research than there were actually pages of story. So... I guess uh, I guess you could take you, you you can't take the the something out of the something, but whatever it is. Back to Damien, he says, "I really want to know more about your project management experience. If you can compare your experience to sitting around a table with your mortal enemies, you must have some stories." <laughs> project management. Now I, I won't go too deep into this because uh, I want to let everybody get on with their day eventually. But in my experience, uh, project management is like being crammed in a room with a group of wildly insecure people who all see themselves as being the smartest and most competent person there. And I think I just described the internet. Um, Now, if you ever want to find yourself in a several-hour-long argument that is based entirely on semantics and phrasing, definitely look into getting into project management. Uh, The money's okay, though, so there is that. Got a lot of backbiting, a lot of looking out for number one. Unfortunately, not a lot of trust. Um, it's it's a weird, it's a weird uh, thing to to get into. Back to Damien. When reading this issue, I was most struck by the fact that even before putting on the helmet, Xavier's face is not completely shown. What is Hickman hiding and why? And I totally missed that when reading this. But looking back, it's a hundred percent true. That's very interesting. I wonder what that's all about. Or, I mean, I am a guy who looks for symbols where there might not be any, but, I mean, that's, uh, that seems kind of pointed, doesn't it? That's very interesting. That's a lot of very interesting food for thought. Um, back to Damien. You talk about missing the discourse around this issue. It probably says something about my community that I mainly saw people discussing potential sexual relationships between characters. The implication of the sinister secrets that Gene and Scott were in an open relationship led to a lot of speculation about their scenes with Wolverine. In particular, the fact that Gene gives a beer to Emma while Scott and Logan watched was read by a lot of my friends as suggesting a four-way thing. I always want more LGBT plus representation, but that seemed a step too far. Now, we, we touched a little bit on that a little earlier this very episode. Um, looking at this scene... I didn't consider any sort of commentary being, or, or symbolism being made in as far as sexual relationships, which, I mean, that's why it's so cool to get so many different points of view here. That's, that's why I, I love this, the feedback section here where we get to discuss these things because I didn't see that through my prism, but I'm sure now I know people do, people did. So that's, that's very interesting. I agree with you here. I think this, I think that might be a step too far. Um, you know, when that rumor started hitting the social medias and, you know, our vaunted comics press sites, it felt kind of like a, uh, like a baity news item. Like it was baiting for, it was like, rather than being an organic story beat, it felt as though it was just there to try to foment reaction, good, bad, just reaction. I, I mean, I, I feel kind of comf- uncomfortable opining, especially when I don't really have a hard opinion. I mean, my whole thing is I'm a curmudgeon. I, I want my X-Men comics to be the same as they were when I was 12. I, I, I want a lot of comics to be like I was when I was 12, so what do I know? 
But uh, that's definitely part of the reason, and maybe the main reason why I'm enjoying going into the feedback here, because that's not something I, I saw. But other people did see it, and, and maybe other people saw other things. And that's that's the kind of discussion I want to have, and that's that's part of the reason I, I want to keep doing this, uh, this program. Uh, back to Damien. I do like Hickman's decision to focus on the resurrected characters at the party scene. Seeing Siren with Banshee or Mondo with Skin shows a level of jubilation, pun slightly intended, that wouldn't happen if they just showed the traditional X-Men. Though I'm not sure Exodus is a great character to leave with the kids. I imagine he's indoctrinating them, and not just to know how to kneel during a mass. And to which, my aching knees, yes. I, I did a lot of kneeling last week. So looking forward to next episode, mainly so I can reveal what it left me expecting and therefore why I was disappointed with Dawn of X. And ah, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts, and actually that goes to anybody listening. I want to hear your thoughts on the fallout of Hoxpox. Even time travelers, if you discover this show like several months from when it's come out, please reach out. I think uh, I think this is evergreen enough to where we can we can keep talking about uh, our takeaways. And uh, especially, I, I did mention, I think it was last episode that Hoxpox, I think, will be one of those. Eventually, it'll be like a seminal evergreen X Men story. It'll just always be, you know, in the top sellers list. Uh, un- unless unless they really really bone it, but uh, I think it's a uh, probably the best candidate for an evergreen X Men book in quite some time. So definitely, if you have thoughts on it, disappointments, optimism, all that good stuff, let me know. Let me know. But I think that's where we'll leave it today. You know, I, I did say this was going to be a biggie, and it was a pretty uh, pretty big episode with the first issue of X Men. But. Uh, I want to thank you so much for hanging out and sticking with me past Hoxpox, if in fact you have. If you would like to reach out, Ace Comics on Twitter, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, uh, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find all that stuff there, chrisandreggie.com for all the audio. But I think my voice is suitably rasped for the day, and I will uh, let you all get along with yours. So... Thank you so, so much for hanging out. I really appreciate it. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.